0: Attention, attention, action this day. You are listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, and it's a Dunkirk Week PS edition. Um, We are delighted to be joined. Uh, I I mean, this is quite extraordinary, really, because we've spoken to um, academics, historians, experts, and to each other at great length, but we haven't actually spoken to someone who... Well, Ethel, welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on, on We Have Ways. Now, you're, well, I, I, I'll leave it to you. What? Why are we talking to you about the Dunkirk evacuation?
1: Because I was there right from the beginning of the war at the Burm- Burntwood Military Hospital, where we had the first convoy back to this country after the uh, Dunkirk um, fiasco. And because I'd signed to uh, say that I would... Uh, If there was a war, I would join the uh, civil nursing reserve, which meant I would have to go to a military hospital. And the the nearest hospital to where I lived um, was Burntwood. Burntwood Hospital, the military hospital, was built in the grounds of St Matthew's Psychiatric Hospital and built especially for the war and just finished in time. For uh, over a year, when we knew there would probably be a war, uh, I joined the St John Ambulance Brigade and uh, became qualified in all the different things, you know, first aid, home nursing, and then that. And I, I was then a VAD, which was a nurse not a, not fully trained, so that um, there was a first aid post in every village, and uh, so I was able to work in the first aid posts as a, a junior nurse, more or less, and. Um, and then the war started. So, Ethel,
0: I know it's rude to ask a lady how old she is, but how old were you <laughs> then, back in... 1939? I was 18. 18 in 1939, goodness. Yes. And was, there was very definitely, though, a feeling that war was coming. There was, there was sort of oh, no doubt yes. about it.
1: yes. We'd been preparing for war for, uh, you know, some time. Yeah. A long time before. Uh, I mean, everything was... Air raid shelters were being built... Uh, there was Dad's army yeah. marching up and down the street, practicing with their, with their uh, brushes, you know, and the crowds of children following them along the streets. It was quite a sight to see. <laughs> and um, uh, we learned uh, how to deal with the gas uh, uh, injuries or anything like that. And um, so there's quite a lot to do beforehand. You know, we were sort of, and and then with the St John Ambulance, we were training all the time. Uh, and as it happened, my husband was the lecturer. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't. He wasn't my husband then. No. I mean, I didn't really know him then. He was just a lecturer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, and so, when war began, um, you 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 were put on. You know, you were you were on a readiness, I suppose, footing for yes, for casualties yes. to come back. And then, of course. The war starts, but there is no there's no fighting in Europe. So, so, no. Was was there so a sense I, of anticipation that work was going to start, or a kind of oh, f- phony oh, yes. sense?
1: Everybody knew that uh, war was evident, you know. And mm. um, so, um, when the war started, I uh, enrolled at uh, Burntwood Military Hospital because that was where I wanted to go. But uh, I went there, and but of course. The, the hospital was empty then and I'd been there for about two weeks when they started bringing in patients, but they were all civilian patients because uh, already there was bombing in Birmingham just starting and um, it, the uh, patients were from the, the hospitals around Birmingham and they came to, sent them to Burntwood for safety because it was in the country, you see. So so we had them until we had the convoy. When we had the first convoy, and that was on May the 27th, 1940, all the civilian patients were um, sent to other places, other hospitals, so that the hospital was empty for that time. We only had about two days' notice. notice. And then this one uh, day, uh, i one better tell you about the wards first, there were seven huts, seven nissen huts, which held forty beds in each ward. They were they were the wards for the men, and the, the um, officers had um, wards in the main building, which belonged to the uh, psychiatric hospital, but it was loaned to us for the for the war. We this night when we were told to be on our, uh, on duty early, we worked twelve hour shifts, and we got to be on duty early that morning and um, we were all there and we saw the convoy coming along up the hill towards the hospital with the busses, lorries, all sorts of things and uh, bringing the men from Dunkirk and when they started unloading all these vehicles some of them, the men were already dead all the wards were filled and um, I was on hut 7 as we called it it was um, Mostly uh, fractures and, uh, well, all sorts of things. We didn't know what they were. But all the men, when we tried to get them into bed, we found that their uniforms were still dumb. What they'd done had been picked up, got away from Dunkirk. They'd uh, been uh, sent to Cosford, and from there they'd been distributed all over the, the Midlands in the different convoys, and we had about 100 uh, soldiers then from the British Expeditionary Force and um, they were our first patients but most of the uniforms had to be cut from them because they were still covered with blood and mud and in a terrible state. Just been used to normal wards with perhaps pneumonia and coughs and things like that um, and heart attacks and everything. Just normal uh, illnesses and then seeing them like that, and some of them, they couldn't speak. They were, you know, all exhausted. There were broken bones, had arms hanging off. And it was such a shock. And uh, I remember when we went to bed that night. You know, we were in a ward, four beds in a ward, and we were all so exhausted after seeing them, and and really upset because it, to see those, all those men, you know, in such a distressed state but anyway we got them all into bed and I must tell you though where we lived it—it um, it was discipline was very strict at the hospital and in this building which was a, a, a big house in the middle of the fields because there were fields all around us um, no men were allowed so it was jokingly called by everybody the virgin retreat <laughs> Because no men were allowed in. <laughs> but, uh,
0: so when 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 yeah. when the, the the first casualties come and then uh, do they just keep coming? There's just more men and, and there's a very much a sense that the BEF are are, are are leaving France in a hurry. Or was that all you saw of the? You know, did it carry on then for 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 yes. a week or so? Yes. Oh, well,
1: it, it carried on for four years. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the you know, the hospital. Um yes, it it was very distressing to see them all like that, you know. So we we just had to nurse them as but as best we knew, uh in there were, as well as the nissen huts for the men with the which were the wards. <clears throat> there were operating theatres and uh, there were nissen huts for the day nurses to sleep in. Uh, of course after we treated those patients it wasn't it was only about two weeks before the next lot came some of them had got better and, and a lot of them were really um, you know ill patients and they uh, uh, had to have bandages all over them in the next lot of patients um it was the very ill ones who they didn't think would live there was one man who I eventually got in touch with, not the patient, but his, his son. And his son came from Blackburn. His father was at Dunkirk, and uh, he, he was on the beach, and they'd just left him. as they were all fleeing to the sea. He was left on the beach because they thought he was just dying. Uh, as it happened, a Catholic priest was walking by and gave him the last rites and left him there, on a stretcher, on in the, on the sands in Dunkirk. All the others fleeing to the sea, with the boats waiting for them. And this, uh, his name was Frank Nolan. He, uh, he was just lying there on the beach, on his stretcher. He'd had nothing to eat for days, and then two French soldiers saw him there, and they were fleeing to the beach also. And they took him on his stretcher to the beach, and managed to get him in, in, into a little boat and then to a hospital ship. Um, that was where he ended up. And so he was brought back to Burntwood, where I was putting special uh, nursing for him because he was, well, they weren't expecting him to live. He'd gone without food, just lying on his stretcher on the beach. He was dying. Uh, he was, he was put in the ward. And um, they traced his uh, family, you know, and his wife came to see him. She asked, you know, if if she could come in and see him into the ward. And uh, she was told where he was. She went all around the ward and she came back and said she couldn't find him. And he was so badly injured, he was all bandaged up. And he, he was so ill, she, she just couldn't recognise him. Anyway, he lived for 41 years after he, he uh, recovered and so I was in charge of him for you know until he was beginning to get better and it was wonderful to know that he did get better because he was so injured when well, nobody ever thought he would live the day there and so that's how they were on that ward but as, and then there was the, 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 there was the officer's ward which was in a main building and so they had the best ward and um, the, the, so we had all the officers there and one day uh, we had um, uh, the Earl of Harwood's son who was a pretty, uh, an officer, you know, and he'd been in, injured and when the, when his father came into the ward to see him he said he'd be, been all over the place and, he said, and he'd been put in a mental hospital and you know, how did that happen? Well, he, he said... Our hospital was built in the grounds of the mental hospital and he'd asked one of the gardeners, uh, you know, where the, where the officer's ward was, and he'd taken him into the mental hospital, uh, one of the mental patients who'd taken him into there and he, said, he told him that he'd be looked after there, he'd be all right.
0: <laughs> and what year did you leave the hospital?
1: 1946. And, of course, that first convoy, uh, when we all got back into our, the nurses, uh, into our um, sleeping quarters, I and the in there, were all exhausted, and I suddenly realised it would have been my wedding day. It should have been the happiest day of my life, and it was one of the saddest days of my life, seeing all these injured men. Well, well, my fiancé was, uh, uh, I didn't know where he was at the time, he was in the, um, He was a petty officer in the Royal, um, the fleet air arm. At that time, he'd been sent, uh, he'd been called up, you know, into the forces. And the week before we were going to, we'd arranged to get married, um, he uh, was sent away. We we didn't know where he was. I didn't hear from him for about uh, a couple of weeks. And then found, he had just a short note from Africa where he ended up for the whole of the war. He was working, because he was a male nurse as well, and he was working in a hospital in Amombasa, assisting the flying doctor and the witch doctor. <laughs> and um, we got married five years later. He was away for five years.
0: Did you send or receive any letters from him?
1: Not once, no. I'd better tell him where we met. Well, here. Yeah said he was the lecturer in the St John Ambulance Brigade, um, you know, he was, he was sort of superintendent of the St John Ambulance. And uh, we, were at the, we used to meet at the first aid post. This was just before the war, the, the year before the war. And um, uh, we were having lectures every week. And the, there were two doctors lecturing as well. And the one doctor asked if I'd like to go and see a post-mortem, as he knew I was training as a nurse. And um, uh, so he took me to this uh, mortuary, which was uh, in the Nesk village called Brown Hills. And it was uh, a shed in the middle of the dustbins, all the dustbin lorries, and that was the mortuary. And when we went in, we just got there, and there was an air raid. The sirens went, and um, there were two doctors and myself, and then uh, the other one man came in. And this happened to be Albert, but my husband eventually, um, and uh, he was uh, lecturing as you know as well. We stood watching the two doctors doing their work on the body that was in the mortuary, and the. Uh, uh, silence went, there was an air raid. All the lights failed and we got candles because there were candles everywhere at that time. And uh, so um, the doctors carried on with their work as we held a candle. Albert and I had a candle each and we stood one each side of the body and in the, it, there was just the candle light for the doctors to be working on the body. And it was such an eerie light in this little shed and looked into each other's eyes and fell in love
0: as romantic settings go i'm not sure you can beat that
1: <laughs> <laughs> well that, that's quite true quite
0: true amazing Ethel. amazing <laughs> thank you for sharing that with us that's
1: incredible <laughs> the only time i've spoken to him was when i was at the in the first aid class learning how to do bandages and knots and things and uh, and uh, so he offered. To, he said he would take me home on his motorbike. And um, so he lived in the next village to me. Every time there was an air raid, you see, we used to go to the first aid posts. Everybody who was connected with it. And um, when the uh, sirens went, um, I would jump. I, I lived in the, one village, so I had to jump out of bed, put my siren suit on, and wait on the corner for him. And I'd hear his motorbike start up from his house in the next village, <laughs> and be ready, be ready to go to the first aid post. <laughs> and and uh, I only then, after that, we he offered to take me to a fair in Warsaw, which was only there like once a year, and that was our only date really. And then the next week he was called Goodness up. Goodness me! He had about uh, he came on leave about three times before we, he was sent somewhere else, you know. And so that was when um, we arranged, we would, we'd get married yes, almost immediately really. And um, But before we could had uh, my wedding dress and everything all ready, the little chapel booked. Uh, the week before we were going to get married, uh, he was sent abroad without any leave. So it was five, five years before we saw, met each other again. <laughs> oh, well, for the first fortnight, we didn't hear anything. And um, he lived with his, wi- his widowed mother, and then she had a telegram saying that he was uh, alive. He'd been saved. It appears he was on a ship, didn't know where he was going, and he was uh, torpedoed. But he'd been saved because uh, I told you he was a male nurse. He'd he'd been working with the doctor in a little cabin on on, on the ship, and, and with a patient, and they were the only three that were saved from that journey onto Goodness. another ship, which in the end ended up in Africa. Good Lord. And uh, I've got you know, I've still got some letters from him uh, that he, he sent during the war, and I say he worked with the flying doctor and the witch doctor. Uh, in. <laughs> And I was I was in the, at Burnford all the time. Ethel,
0: this um, is absolutely extraordinary, <laughs> incredible. Oh, goodness <laughs> me! Did you treat soldiers throughout the war?
1: Oh, yes, yes. We had, uh, you know, know, all of them from there. I was there all that time. And um, we had, uh, on different wards. We didn't always stay on the same ward. And uh, with the mental hospital being in the same grounds, uh, they used to have concerts and dances and things there. And we could take our patients across the grounds you know, in wheelchairs, they're the ones who would uh, right. and um, uh, we'd uh, go, take them into, their, into the mental hospital to see a film. I always remember I saw the first Phantom of the Opera film there <laughs> and then sometimes we used to put on shows for them doing the can-can and all the men. All the mental patients used to sit in rows at the beginning of this big hall and our patients would be at the back, you see. And all the men shouting and clapping when we were doing the can <laughs> <laughs> We We started to have lectures, of course, most of us weren't properly trained nurses, you see. We, so they, they were putting lectures on for us to carry on with our uh, uh, education. But um, we kept getting interrupted by air raids, and uh, then we'd ha- have to leave straight away and go back to our own hospital, so they stopped the- all those. You know, we used to have uh, quite a lot to do with the mental hospital, and then taking the patients, uh, and then one night, um, November the 15th, 1940, I think it was, uh, which we the, we, we could hear the planes going over, mm. the, yes, because uh, the, the German planes, they had a sort of heavy sound. You could always tell the sound of the German planes, different to our own. I and mean, we this one night we heard them, you know, crowds of them going over, over, over us on the, We we thought they were on the way to Birmingham, but they were on the way to Coventry that night. Mm. And of course, uh, if we stood near the door, we could see outside. We watched the sky turning red, and the sky was red all over. We didn't actually know where it was then, but then of course the next day we found out Coventry the Cathedral had gone, so uh, that was... And another thing about being in the huts, it, there the seven huts in a row. And there was a road in between, and next to the all uh, the huts was a farm, and um, of course all the fields were there for the farm, the other side of, our, of the hospital. And uh, every night, on if nurses were on night duty, you'd see them creeping out after matron's last visit for the night. You know, no nobody else would be around. When, uh, and quite often there were only t- two or three nurses on duty and you'd see them, you know, creeping out at the door, looking around, seeing nobody <laughs> was there, hopping off down the road to where we could get into the field and in, just inside the field there was a, what do you call, a potato camp, you know, a, a, potatoes buried in soil, you know, making a bank all the way along and all the nurses... They'd have some, either in a knife or a spoon or something, and dig out a couple of potatoes for whoever menu was on duty, and take them back to the, the ward. And because we got a kitchen, and you cooked the potatoes in the ward, and the uh, <laughs> matron never found out. I don't think. And <laughs> but that that happened almost every night. <laughs> and we'd be, I've been stealing these potatoes out of the camp. And another funny thing that used to happen at, at night, um, it, well, not just at night, but uh, in the afternoon, all the men were supposed to rest, you know, even though if they could sit out of bed, they would. If not, not many of them could get up. <laughs> but they'd be, all be getting in bed, and they'd got the sheets over their heads, and... When I first went on day duty and saw this, I thought, what <laughs> are they um, doing, you know? And so, of course, I asked them, you know, what, what's happening? And they said, oh, don't tell anybody, you know. <laughs> and, um, and then and I could hear them shouting to one another. And they were playing bingo. And it was illegal in those days. And they, I don't know why it was illegal. And... Uh, and the, so they had to come, cover up under the bedclothes so if, you know if anybody came in the ward they wouldn't know what they were doing <laughs> I think they were all very ill with sheets over their heads <laughs> but um, another thing about the, the, the wards as well um, some of them were really very ill and you know a lot of them were dying and. Um, uh, we were allowed to have the radio on uh, for the news now and again. And always after the news, there'd be uh, music, and messages for home from Vera Lynn. And she would sing. And I always say, when I went to Dunkirk and I told the, them about this, you know, they couldn't believe it. And she, I think she did more for the morale of the men. For the whole of the war, really, because all all her songs meant something to them, you know. And you would sometimes see, perhaps, because most of them were only eighteen or nineteen, the the all the soldiers, and um, and and did you see the young boys, you know, eighteen years old, the same as I was, and crying for the mothers, you know, and Vera's voice would come on, and immediately, you know. There was silence in the ward. You know, it meant such a lot to them. When I was in Dunkirk, and um, I had to give an after-dinner speech, and I'd tell them about this, and I was, afterwards I was followed by reporters, the Belgium and the French, you know, wanting to know more about her. <laughs> and she's still alive. Yeah, she's still with us, yeah. 103 years. And I said, the only thing I've always always, ever wanted was to meet her, and I never had.
0: Thank you so much for speaking to me, Ethel. I I, I can't get over the story of you (laughs) meeting your husband.
1: Yeah, well, the doctors went on with their work, you see, we stood one each side of the body. It was a lady, actually. And and I said, we looked into each other's eyes. (laughs) 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 But... um, and, and of course, I, we had to wait five years before we could get married and we were getting married on his first leave. Um, and uh, uh, I was getting married at a Little Chapel in where I lived in Shelfield. I've, I've got all the wedding photographs, you know, uh, and uh, I've got all my wedding dress and everything, four bridesmaids and little page boy. Uh, and they, of course, they'd all been packed away for five years but um, we managed to, to get on with them. yeah. And um, uh, so we, we got there and when we got to the little chapel, it was absolutely packed, people were standing outside and all the neighbours in the village had uh, offered food, well, rationing, you see, so they'd offered uh, food and that. But um, there was a coach outside and I thought, well, I don't know why that is, but I'd worked a 12-hour shift uh, come off duty in the morning, all the patients had said goodbye to me and given me a table number as a wedding present and When I got to the little chapel, there was this coach there, and all the ones who could walk had come to see me married um we paid uh, it, seven and sixpence for the wedding uh, the marriage license and, uh, and uh my mother was a nurse in the first world war you know that's why I always wanted to be a nurse and uh And she she had booked a honeymoon for us, uh, because it was 1945, 10th of March. The the war hadn't finished, but um, we went to London, no. um, And um, uh, we we got there all right and stayed with mother's friends there for a week. But when we got there, the beach was barricaded. and, And of course, we had to stay in this little guest house and the, the pier was cut in half and uh, and then on the way back uh, we uh, went by train and um, uh, on the way back we had to go, go from Llandudno to London and when we got there the station was on fire um, the ceiling and the platforms were all on fire and it was the V2s still dropping that that was 1945, so. and so um, instead of getting home the the one night, we didn't get home till the next morning.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, thank you again, Ethel, and goodbye.